Section 6 of G. K. Chesterton in America A Catholic Review of the Week This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G. K. Chesterton in America A Catholic Review of the Week by G. K. Chesterton The Thrift of Thought I am sufficiently ignorant to be in no danger from the trivial tyranny of derivations. Even those stray ones which unaccountably stuck to me at school are unlikely to mislead. I do not admit that tragedy means playing the goat. We do not use oysters to ostracize people in modern society, but if anything for the opposite purpose. But there are some words of which the derivative sense, though hackneyed, is still really relevant, and one of them is the Greek word economy. Indeed, there is no necessity to go to the Greek word for the deeper meaning. The plain English word thrift contains in itself the contradiction to its own misuse. The word thrift is just now and this is particularly true, of course, among the English, very much thrown about, and is, of course, especially thrown at the poor. Yet before we have the right to say to the poor, be thrifty, we should have the power to say to them, thrive. It is a commonplace, of course, that Shakespeare actually uses the word in its positive sense of prosperity, where thrift may follow fawning and the accidental word contains the case against our capitalist society. With us this positive thrift does follow fawning, and does not follow anything else. It does not, with us, follow independence, the opposite of fawning, as it does in the peasant countries. The poor Englishman, the poor American, the poor North German may grow rich as servant of somebody either by obeying or betraying him. He cannot grow rich as the master of something, even so much as a scrap of earth. He has no real motive to save anything except his job, that is, the favor of the jobber. He naturally takes his pleasure in a hand-to-mouth style, for he does not know when he will suddenly cease to be a hand and become only a mouth. You may put this truth gravely by saying that when a man lends money to himself, it must be a productive loan. Or you may put it more playfully in the manner of Mr. Guppy's friends and say, But what's the good of living cheap when you've got no money? You might as well live dear. Or you can say, as I say, take to pieces the word economy. It all amounts to the truth that if you want the poor wage-earner to practice housekeeping, you must give him a house. He cannot live in a money-box. But when we praise the independence of those European peasantries, which are now the one wall across Christendom against socialism and the servile state, and when we disparage in comparison the fawning, the snobbery and slavery of our industrialism, we are often too narrowly understood. It is imagined that when we have no human ideal beyond the hard or stern type which in some individuals or some environments 
accompanies that independence. Here, however, there is a confusion of thought. We certainly decline to keep most men in misery for fear some of them should be misers. We have denounced the philanthropist when he refused the poor property on the ground that they would waste it. We may surely denounce him as much if he refuses them property on the ground that they will not waste it. He has grown inconsistent rather than we, we the believers in the independence and virility of peasantries. But the state will be no more reckless in distributing farms because some farmers will be stingy than the farmer is in scattering seed because some of it falls on stony ground. Spiritually, the French, the Russian, and the Italian peasants differ from one another, and an English or American farmer would differ from them all, to say nothing of the million individual differences among the saints, poets, tribunes, and patriotic leaders who have been by origin peasants. In short, economic independence only allows a man to be a miser as it allows him to be a mystic. That is, it allows him to be a man, and whatever he chooses. Now what may be called the mystical education of peasants is a matter for religion and not for any political or economic arrangements. But in itself it is a thing as telescopic and interminable as the wildest progressive could desire. Well-distributed property has never prevented peasants from being enthusiasts for new religions. It only prevents their being what is called in Ireland, I believe, supers, converts by bribery or the terrorism of hunger. I quite agree that this moral and artistic side of the peasant problem is as interesting as it is infinite, and it is this which I am for the moment considering. Now, what interests me in the matter is this, that the rules of thought are essentially the rules of thrift. I mean that the best way of taking stock of one's philosophic and artistic estate is analogous to the best way of so dealing with a real estate, especially a small one. It permits of the same terminology and is troubled with the same errors. When we expect a peasant to make the best of a field, we do not mean he should put up with it like a prison. That is not making the best of it, but only accepting the worst. We mean that his thrift thrives, that his land, so to speak, enlarges inward, that, like a cup in a fairy tale, it holds more and more without overflowing. And the same intensive cultivation can be encouraged in the thought and even in the fancy. Almost the first thing that attracted me to the medieval mind was precisely what seems to have repelled some five generations from it. I mean the question of how many angels could dance on the point of a needle. For after all, the whole point of a needle is its point. It is the mathematical mystery of its infinite smallness that makes it particularly sharp, so that it can trace out the largest tapestries. And there have been needles 
and peasants' needles at that, which have actually produced their angels from their points, which have made vast angels visible with purple and peacock plumage and glories of sanguine and gold. Anyhow, I prefer the mystic's query of how many such rich angels can stand on a needle to the manufacturer's boast of how many poor devils must drudge to make one. There may be something mystical, there is certainly something mysterious, in a form of economy which is practiced by the most luxurious. We have all noticed four or five clubmen smoking cigars that cost a shilling apiece and carefully passing from one to the other a flaming match which costs some inconceivable fraction of a farthing, displaying the dexterity of Houdin and something of the courage of Chevola in their efforts to preserve alight that tiny piece of stick. But I fear they do not truly realize themselves as priests of an immemorial fire-worship, though sometimes the very match is called a vesta, to remind them that they are invoking virgin Rome and the goddess of the guarded flame. They have lost the trick of that fiery thrift, which delivers a tradition from hand to hand like a match. Could we hope that the clubmen saw any holy meaning in the match, we should expect them to treat it, even after it was extinguished, with less levity. And if the rest of the rite were at all proportioned to their solemnity in this particular, the ashes of the cigars themselves ought to be preserved in ancestral urns. The thing is, I fear, an accident, but the intensive cultivator of the mind, were he in the place of the clubman, would find in such an accident a hint. And it is precisely here that the clubmen can make so much less of the match than the mystic can make of the needle. For the mightiest pleasures of the imagination are all made out of hints. And there are as many hints in a small house as in a large one. Generally speaking, the rich cannot take hints. That kind of man, in that kind of club, might have everything from his club to his cigar very big and solid before he can see it. He cannot do the expede herculem, or reconstruct leviathan from a bone. Even his wildness is due to his tameness, to his lack of imagination. Fashionable people generally have to make a thing a fact before they can even indulge it as a fancy. They insist on dizzy speed and distance in motoring to find something which the high philosopher can find by sliding down the banisters. They are really extravagant in expenditure because they cannot be extravagant in thought. The neo-pagan poets of my boyhood used in their poems to praise as demigods such despots as Nero, who burnt cities, marshaled gladiators, or generally painted the town red. But I think that the very fact that such things could be put into poems proves that they need not have been put into practice. Apart from somewhat graver objections which I entertain to such experiments, I will maintain that those who did them were dull people, and did them 
because they were dull people. So American millionaires, the dullest and least freakish people on earth, give the freak dinners. That is, the rich man's dinner consists of one joke, where a poor man's dinner consists of a hundred. All art is a kind of gigantic gesture, but an hour in a free man's life consists of a hundred such symbolic gestures which he would not be at the pains to perpetuate any more than he would turn every figure of speech into a figure of marble. For instance, I have always sympathized with one of those heathen tyrants above mentioned, Tarkin, I think, when he indicated his political ideals by striking with his scepter at some tall poppies and beheading them at a blow but that he should afterwards put himself to the trouble of laboriously decapitating real people in priggish fulfillment of his program, this seems to me an anticlimax, and one of those sequels that so seldom sustained the first level of a work of art. I have often relished the full artistic enjoyment of Tarkin on a country walk, appearing in all his kingly terrors to a thistle, and all the good he got out of his scepter can be got out of a walking stick. And if Nero did set Rome on fire for mere artistry, it was because he had never really sat, as one might imagine Alfred sitting, seeing all the red cities to be seen in a peasant's fire. G. K. Chesterton End of section 6 Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.